you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and we're not going to go a ton into his history tonight. I'm not, Weston May. Um, but I do want to say this before we get going. I'm not going to give you a glorified book review, okay? Uh, I'm not going to give you a glorified book report. What I want us to do is take the idea of Christian community, and I want us to, to take that in a more holistic approach, and then eventually speak into the book life together, and then Weston can break other things down for you. But when you think of Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer is, a, is an intriguing and polarizing figure. Everybody claims Bonhoeffer. So if you're in a mainline church, you claim Bonhoeffer. If you're in an evangelical church, you claim Bonhoeffer. If you're a liberal, you claim Bonhoeffer. If you're a conservative, you claim Bonhoeffer. And from his writings, you can find something in there that fits your paradigm. It's a, he's a very interesting guy, very unique guy. Um, that said, Bonhoeffer's whole purpose was pushing back against not only the rise of national socialism in Germany in the late 30s, early 40s, but against the rise of liberal Christianity. And so guys who influenced him, such as Karl Barth, um, Nehemiah, and other, other people like that who were more conservative theologians in Germany at the time, had a huge impact on his life. But one thing we need to remember is that Bonhoeffer was German aristocracy. Uh, his father, Karl, was uh, the leading psychologist in Berlin in that era. Uh, he was a professor. Uh, so Bonhoeffer grew up as a child of privilege and continued in his privilege until he was arrested by the SS, even while he was serving in the German, uh, German Secret Service at the time, kind of as an undercover Christian among all of those who were following Hitler's regime. So he's, he is a very, very interesting character. His writings are incomplete. Let me rephrase that. His theology is incomplete because his life was cut short um, because of the execution uh, that, at the hands of the Nazis. But uh, what we do have from his seminal work, The Cost of Discipleship, or in the original version just called Discipleship, to Life Together, to Letters and Papers from Prison. If you've never read Letters and Papers from Prison, uh, these are the documents that he wrote after he was interred in a prison camp, a Nazi prison camp. It's fascinating as he writes back and forth to parents and colleagues and friends and sister, um, just, just uh, pretty dynamic stuff about what it means to follow Jesus in the worst of situations. Uh, he had such an impact in the prison camp that even the guards called him Pastor, Pastor Bonhoeffer. Um, and so he had that type of impact on their lives as well. And so when we think about life together, we think about uh, specifically the Confessing Church Seminary. The Confessing Church was formed around biblical doctrine when the German church started to follow the Nazi regime. And again, gathered young pastors to train them up in biblical discipleship. And so Life Together is born out of that experience of community. And so as you've read, you've seen what that looks like in many different facets. But I want us to start with talking about Christian community with where everything is founded. And that is in an understanding of the gospel. Did everybody get a, a handout, a kind of a fill in the blank sheet? Somebody raise your hand, wave, put a thumb up, nod. There you go. Very good. Thank you. Um, so I like to do these because some of you love to fill in blanks. Uh, some of you will only pay half attention to tonight, and it just gives you something to doodle on. So whatever your spiritual gift is, go ahead and, and, and apply that to that piece of paper. But this at least gives us a guide and, and a direction and maybe some reminders of where we've been. So let's start with the gospel. Everything is founded on the gospel, right? So I am going to, uh, I'm going to share my screen with you, and um, that way we can help you fill in some of those blanks. 
There you go. All right, can you guys see that? Okay, great, thanks. All right, so um, a correct understanding of discipleship and therefore Christian community is rooted in a correct understanding of the biblical gospel. I wanna quote something to you from Bonhoeffer. This comes from The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, discipleship means adherence to Christ. And because Christ is the object of that adherence, it must take the form of discipleship. An abstract Christology or the study of Christ, a doctrinal system, a general religious knowledge on the subject of grace or on the forgiveness of sins, render discipleship superfluous. And in fact, they positively exclude any idea of discipleship, whatever, and are essentially hostile to the whole concept of following Christ. With an abstract idea, it is possible to enter into a relationship of formal knowledge to become enthusiastic about it and perhaps even to put it into practice, but it can never be followed in personal obedience. Christianity without the living Christ, this is key, Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. What Bonhoeffer is saying here, and it's still applicable to our day, is there's a huge difference between going to church and following Jesus. There's a huge difference between adhering to a certain doctrine of Christianity cognitively and following Jesus in obedience. And as such, we see, and we still see that. I see that in our church today. You guys probably have seen that. If you've been in church life at all, you see people that are very content to, to go to church, be a part of a community, but not truly follow Jesus. In fact, we've, we've minimized the use. I was talking to my discipleship group about this tonight or this afternoon. I said, we've minimized the use of the word Christian in our congregation. And, and one of the reasons is it, 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 it's more of a social construct now than it really describes what followers of Jesus look like. We use the term Christ follower, and I, defer, I, I simply define that as someone who follows Christ. And then I'll throw Christian back in there for context. But Bonhoeffer speaking to this, this idea of discipleship, this idea of following Jesus, this idea of being obedient to him is so much different than just adhering to some type of theological truth or some organization in which you belong. And so he continues. This is another quote uh, from The Cost of Discipleship. I think it is, if I can get this thing to work. There we go. All right, Bonhoeffer and the Cost of Discipleship. This is on your note page. No one but Christ himself can call us to discipleship. Discipleship, in essence, never consists in a decision for this or that specific action. Maybe you want to put there uh, like spiritual disciplines. I, I'm a fan of spiritual disciplines. We can call them spiritual practices. But discipleship in its essence never consists in a decision just to do those things. It's always a decision for or against Jesus Christ. So discipleship is either for Jesus or it's against Jesus. It's just not a religious rule in which you follow and do specific things. I love um, what Richard Foster says in in celebration of discipline, his great work on the spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. He says the disciplines don't change us. Bible study, prayer, silence, solitude. The disciplines don't change us. They simply put us into a place where Christ will change us. 
And so this, this goes back to the idea that Bonhoeffer had here, that discipleship is always a decision for or against Jesus. The specific actions then follow the decision that you've made. My friend Bill Hall, who leads and founded the Bonhoeffer Project that I'm a part of in his book, Conversion and Discipleship, simply says this regarding the gospel. All who are called to salvation are called to discipleship. No exceptions, no excuses. All who are called to salvation are called to discipleship. No exceptions, no excuses. One of the things that we try to expose in the Bonhoeffer Project is the fallacy that there's a difference between conversion and discipleship. We've drawn this line through salvation in the Western world that says, I can be saved and not follow Jesus. That's not a biblical concept. When we are saved, as we'll see in a second, as we're, when we're saved, when we come into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, based on his grace, his death, resurrection, his grace, then we come into a life of following him. That's what salvation leads to. It leads us not just to heaven later on, but into a relationship of following Jesus. So all who are called to salvation are called to discipleship. If that isn't true, then discipleship becomes an option. I love what Bill says. It's like taking up an option on your contract, right? And so if, if discipleship and salvation aren't linked, then discipleship is either for a higher class of Christian or it's something I can decide to do or not decide to do. But according to Jesus and the New Testament writers, that's not the case, that we are called into new life as new creations to follow the one who has claimed our lives by his death and resurrection. Okay, so as a result of that, um, we need to understand what it means to come into a relationship with Jesus so that we might understand the implications of the relationship, both individually and corporately, in a life of following him. So I want to show you a graphic. It's on your sheet. Um, this is one of the things we use in the Bonhoeffer Project. What we have identified are six main gospels that are preached in the Western world, um, specifically. Uh, there are some other types of gospels that are heretical uh, that uh, that lean into cultism and other things like that that we don't put on the chart. But these are the main gospels that we see being preached in the West today. The first gospel is this. It's called the forgiveness only gospel. Now, the idea of the forgiveness only gospel, it's what I grew up with. Many of you may have grown up with this. If you will simply ask Jesus forgiveness, he will give you a ticket to heaven. And that's all you need to do. We have a man in our church who came up to me as we and uh, initiated our discipleship strategy here at First Baptist. And this was about two or three years in. And he pulled me aside. He said, are you guys, why are you guys adding to the gospel? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, he said, you guys are telling us we have to obey Jesus and do what he says. I went, well, yeah. Um, he goes, I was told 60 years ago, this was an 80 year old man. He said, I was told 60 years ago, the only thing I had to do was pray a prayer and Jesus would forgive me. And I didn't have to do anything else. And it blew my mind. I'm like, really? That's all you've got out of being in the church for the last 60 years. That, that broke my heart more than it did anything else. But what the forgiveness only gospel creates is this idea, again, of following Christ as an option. It creates, if you will, a sanctified passivity where we can be content in what's going to happen in our future. But really, right now, doesn't matter to Jesus so much. We're in. Why do we need to do anything else? Right. The second type of gospel that we see in the West right now is what is called the left gospel or the gospel of the left. This could be the old left or the new left. The old left really came to prominence in the early, early 20th century, uh, specifically up in the Northeast. 
this was really social action, not really uh, adherence to the Bible as the authority, but social action is simply the gospel. We live out what, what the gospel is simply by serving others. Uh, it says here, helping the needy. That would be a, a typical uh, old left idea. The new left is that still. Uh, we've seen that in the emergent and the emerging churches movements in the past 15, 20 years. Um, but it also leans into the left politically as well. And so the left gospel says that this is an accommodation to culture. Biblical truth is optional and, and actually a phrase that I've heard. There's a church in town where I live that kind of leans this way. And they say culture over scripture, uh, conscience over scripture. That would be the left gospel. You can't really know what's true. So let's just serve others. That type of idea. One of the probably the fastest growing gospel in the world right now is what we call the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel uh, came out of the Pentecostal movement. Uh, the prosperity gospel is basically says this, that because we've been redeemed, God owes us now everything that he's promised us. And therefore, we can claim our rights as children of God and make God do what we want him to do. And a lot of this centers around the idea of health and wealth. You've probably heard that term before. I uh, actually heard uh, uh, or saw something on YouTube this past week where some prosperity gospel preachers were dealing with the pandemic and dealing with the vaccine. And they said they didn't want to be vaccinated. And and because the airlines were, were requiring vaccinations, then the people of God needed to give them money so that they could get new airplanes to take the gospel around the world. And the reason that the United States was suffering was because the people of God were not giving them money. And so this idea of prosperity, this idea that the pastors prosper like that, it creates this sense of entitlement, right? It's a, it's a, it's a form of God management. And I may even extend that to say God manipulation. God, this is what you said. Now, this is what I want type thing. Uh, the fourth type of gospel is the consumer gospel. The consumer gospel and the forgiveness only gospel are kind of kissing cousins, the consumer gospel says, here's a gospel that meets all of your needs, right? The church becomes my spiritual Walmart. The church exists for me. I don't exist for the church. And so it creates a self-indulgent impatience when, and, and uh, we've all seen these, and if you've been in church at any amount of time in your life, you know, this is the way I want it. In fact, we, I had in Texas when I was serving at the church where Weston and I served together, had someone come up to our worship pastor and say, I paid my tithe. Here's the list of songs you need to sing. That's a consumer mentality, right? And there's an addiction to their own desires in that. The right gospel, obviously the opposite of the left. And we can say that the right gospel leans politically as well. And, and many times it does. But in this sense, the right gospel is about being right. That if you, you're, you're saved, if you have the right doctrine, um, and this, this, there's some danger in this, you know, because scripture should lead to doctrine. Doctrine shouldn't lead to scripture. And if it's all about being right, there are full letters in the New Testament. I'm preaching through Galatians right now that says we can't do enough to be right, right? We need grace. We cannot be justified by the law. We are justified by the grace in Jesus Christ. And when we start to place this burden, not unlike the false teachers in the churches in Galatia did to become Jews before they became Christians, that you must have right doctrine before you become a true follower of Christ. It creates what we call this theological swagger. There's a theological arrogance that comes along with being right. And it builds an exclusiveness, uh, over other people and away from other people and a detachment from them as well. The sixth gospel is the one obviously that 
that we would promote and I would promote, and you could call this the kingdom gospel or the discipleship gospel. And basically the idea is that when you come into relationship with Jesus Christ, you come into a new relationship in following him. And so the whole call to follow Jesus is wrapped up here. This does not create discipleship as an option or accommodation to culture or entitlement or self-indulgence or theological swagger, but apprentices that model their life after Jesus, living our lives as if Jesus were living them. And therefore, followers are intent on learning to live and love like Jesus did. We're emulating him, Ephesians 5.1. We're imitating God as, as in Jesus. And so those are some of the ideas that come out uh, of our understanding of the gospel. And so as such, one thing we say in the Bonhoeffer Project is this. Why are we spending time on the gospel tonight? Because the gospel we proclaim will determine the disciples we make. The gospel we proclaim will determine the disciples we make. If we preach a forgiveness-only gospel, you're going to have a lot of people that are excited about heaven, but maybe not doing anything in obedience to Jesus. If you have a left gospel, you may have a lot of servants, but it may not be biblically based. If you have a prosperity gospel, what happens if you don't prosper? Do you not have enough faith? And then it gets back to a theology of works. If you're a consumer, and on and on and on. The The gospel we proclaim determines the disciples we make. So what is a disciple then? Well, let's look. I'm going to take you back to the Bible real quick. Matthew 4, 18 through 20. Uh, Matthew says this, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Again, you can see the key Uh, idea there in what discipleship looks like, what apprenticeship looks like, is to follow Jesus. So as a result, there there are several elements in Jesus' calling of his first disciples that speak to the calling and nature of a disciple today. And it's, it's birthed out of this idea of the gospel, okay? So first thing is this, Jesus was actively calling others to himself, okay? We see that all the way throughout all four Gospels, uh, Matthew 9, 35 through 38 would be an example. Jesus went through all the villages, cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so what was Jesus' central message here? What was the gospel of the kingdom that he was preaching? Well, Mark 1.15, write that down somewhere. Mark 1.15 is Jesus' first sermon. It's shorter than any sermon Weston and I could ever preach, but it has the punch of eternity in it. Mark 1.15, Jesus said this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's powerful, folks. The time is fulfilled. Something has happened. Something has changed. What has changed? The kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? Well, if the kingdom of God is at hand, then the king is present. Who is the king? Well, of course, we understand the king to be Jesus. And so the kingdom of God has come because the king has come. Therefore, we have to respond in some way, right? Because if a king shows up and there's a kingdom now that's being presented to us, we need to respond, whether to receive or to reject. And so Jesus says this, repent, to turn, change your mind, change your worldview, and believe in the gospel, the good news. What's the gospel? The gospel is that the king has come. So when we do that, 
Then what do we do? Well, Mark 1, 17 and 18, just a few verses later, Jesus said the same thing as he does in Matthew 9. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And so Jesus was actively seeking out and calling others to himself. You see, the kingdom of heaven is the proclamation of the rule and the reign of Christ over all of life. Therefore, Jesus was calling people everywhere to turn from their loyalty to their sin and themselves and to turn and to follow him. So in our original text here in Matthew 4, we see what happens when he makes this call of the gospel, when he presents himself as the king, if you will. Well, Peter and Andrew were actively doing something else. Most of the people that we run into in life are actively doing something else rather than following Jesus. And we were at one point too, until someone brings the gospel to us. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So there's our former life, if you're a Christ follower tonight, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath or children under God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were separated. We were dark. We were captive to our sin. Our worldview was not one of God's kingdom. It was one of the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin. Peter and Andrew were actively doing something else than pursuing the kingdom of God. But then Jesus shows up. And one thing I tell our congregation, when Jesus shows up, everything changes, right? And so they responded to Jesus' call by faith. The second part of that text in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says, but God, those are two of the most powerful words in the whole New Testament in Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So they respond to this call by faith. Fourth, they abandon all else to make him the priority of their lives. We see that famous text in Luke 9, 23, write that down next to that one. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That literally means to put yourself to the side, take up your cross, be willing to suffer daily, and then follow me. Live your life as if I were living it, Jesus would say. So what's the result of all that? We see it in the fifth part of Matthew 4, and that they were promised a better purpose in life. So Jesus, again, at the end of that says, "I'll make, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. In John 14, 12, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. And so this whole understanding of the gospel and this illustration that comes straight out of scripture of Jesus calling his first disciples is, is critical for us because the gospel we proclaim, the gospel we believe in will determine the disciples we are and the disciples that we make. And that's gonna speak in a minute into this idea of life together, of Christian community. So what's a disciple? How would we define a disciple? I found a great definition on the internet, um, which is where you find everything that's true, right? Here's the definition I found. Disciples are simply individuals who have placed their faith in Christ 
as their savior and are as a result seeking to pattern their lives after his example. That's pretty good. To this end, a disciple is a learner, which is the, what, what the Greek word methetes means. That's the word in Mark, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, John, and Acts for disciple is methetes, means a learner. And Christ is the one whom they are seeking to learn. It's a great definition. I'll give you the, uh, the website so you can go look that up later. It's at covenantshreeport.org. I thought it was a great definition of a disciple. So when you think about the gospel and when you think about the result of the gospel is making disciples, not just going out and having Bible studies, but people who follow after Jesus, it puts us in a position to understand the idea of what we become, this new creation in Christ that follows after Jesus. And we don't just do that individually. We do that as a corporate body as well, because we're called into relationship with the body of Christ. And so understanding the gospel. But after that, Bonhoeffer helps us out with some stuff because we can easily default back into being a good churchman, but not really following after Jesus. And so Bonhoeffer in the book, The Cost of Discipleship, talks about this idea of costly grace versus the idea of cheap grace. So I want to give you some definitions because it will eventually speak into this idea of life together. The first is this. He, uh, Bonhoeffer in, in Cost of Discipleship defines cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Can someone attend church, be at a bunch of religious functions, give a lot of money and try to be the best person they can and in the worldly, in worldly standards, kind of live a pretty good life, be a nice guy or a nice lady. Absolutely. But are they really a disciple of Jesus? What does that look like? Well, grace is never cheap. Okay. I was, I was reading a, a, a read a quote. I don't have it in front of me right now to our congregation Sunday. And we were talking about the idea of defaulting back into things. Paul talks in Galatians 3 about, he is one of the only times as a pastor I can call our people foolish because he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, right? Who has fascinated you so much that you would step back from grace into law? That's cheap grace right there. When you understand what Christ has done on the cross, what he's done through the empty grave, what kind of new life he has called you into, and you default from that back into a life you knew before, either because it's the only thing you know or because it's comfortable, that's a definition of cheap grace. And the idea there is that we, yes, Jesus has to die for us to be saved, but we have to get off the throne of our lives and we have to die to ourselves as well. If anyone would come after me, Luke 9 again, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me, Jesus says. So there is a dying. And as we die, we actually live, Jesus tells us. So cheap grace is grace without discipleship, the cross or Jesus. So what is costly grace? Well, costly grace then confronts us, Bonhoeffer says, as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Bonhoeffer made the critical distinction between costly grace and cheap grace. Um, he, he again, defines cheap grace 
as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as Christ, the Christian conception of God, an intellectual assent that the idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure our forgiveness. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the word of God. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. But costly grace is one born out of a biblical gospel, and it's one that leads to a life fully committed to living and loving like Jesus. See, we're not saved by what we do. We just saw that in Ephesians 2. But we are saved into a life of obedience. Martin Luther famously said this, we are saved by faith alone, not our works, but not by faith that remains alone. We are saved, Ephesians 2.10, to be God's workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus, how? By grace through faith, for good works. Let me, tell, let me say uh, Luther's quote again. We are saved by faith alone, not our works, but not by a faith that remains alone. I love a quote from Dallas Willard. Um, Dallas Willard was professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California, for years, he passed away, I think in 2018, something like that, uh, wrote seminal books. He was a layman, um, uh, went to a Trinity Temple growing up uh, in, at, in college up in Tennessee, transferred to my alma mater, Baylor, and then got his PhD up at the University of Wisconsin in philosophy, ends up teaching for decades and decades, 40 years or something at the University of Southern California, and was one of the most brilliant lay theologians we've known in the United States. This is what Dallas Willard says in his book, The Great Omission. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. We are saved by grace through faith into works. We are to work out, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the New Testament says. We are to train ourselves to be godly. There's personal responsibility to grow toward maturity in Christ, and there is personal responsibility within the body of Christ, those of us who are attached to a local congregation like you are, to support one another in that endeavor. Okay, so this idea of the gospel leads into the idea of what grace truly is. It's not cheap. It's not just attendance at a, at a religious event like a church service or a Bible study or a book club. But no, it leads into a life of following Jesus where the person who follows, follows Jesus is formed by the power of God's spirit more and more into the character of Jesus every day as the spirit does his work in us. I've always said this discipleship is both a partnership and a process. It's a partnership between the Holy Spirit and the believer and fellow believers, and it's a process that, that lasts for the rest of our lives. One of the things that we try to do here at our church is to cast what we call a theological vision. Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City, actually coined that term, but the theological vision is simply this, something that's big enough to chase after and worthy enough to chase after, but something we may not necessarily reach in this life. And so what we try to challenge our people to do as they follow Jesus is that they pursue a Christ-centered life. Is that something that can start to happen in this life? Absolutely. Will it be completed in this life? No, it won't. But man, it's a, it's a life worth living. When Jesus can become the center of everything that we are, and he's not just a part of our life, but he is our life and everything else re revolves around him, then we found life and life abundantly as Jesus promised. So 
how does all this fit into the book you actually read? I'm glad you asked. So Bonhoeffer's vision for life together. So what is the church? What is the church? If Christian discipleship is born out of a biblical gospel that demands our lives in obedience to Jesus, and Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me in John 14, 15, through a giving up of all that we are to follow him, we see that in Galatians 2, 20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I, live by, I no longer live for myself, but I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if Christian discipleship is born out of that biblical gospel, demands uh, on our lives obedience to Jesus through the giving up of who we are to follow him, then it is built in the context of relationship. It's built in the context of the relationship with God and with relationship with like-minded others. So Bonhoeffer in Life Together contends that Christ most vividly expresses his presence through his church, that the church wraps itself, if you will, around the presence of Christ. There's, there's a book by Bonhoeffer. I've actually got an American first edition, which I was very uh, pleased to find uh, in a church library. They gave it to me. I did not steal it. Um, but it's called Christ the Center. And it's a Bonhoeffer's work on a high Christology, the doctrine of Christ, that Christ is literally the center of me and the center of Christian community. And that's what he's talking about in life together. So his whole entire argument for life together is centered around Psalm 133.1. He mentions this at the beginning of the book. Uh, Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Therefore, he says this uh, on page five of Life Together. He says, Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. There is no Christian community that is more than this and none that is less than this. Ultimately, the reason we come together as the church, as ecclesia, as the gathering of people is around Jesus. The word ecclesia is not a, not a spiritual term. The Greek word ecclesia uh, was actually a, pol a socio-political term. Uh, in, in the Roman world, in the Greek world, it simply meant a gathering of people. So you could have an ecclesia uh, in Colossae or Philippi or Rome or wherever. As you gather, that was the ecclesia, the gathering of people. And when, when Christians heard that term, they, they started to realize, well, we're an ecclesia. We're a group of people that gather around a central person, and that person is Jesus. Therefore, we are Jesus' ecclesia. We are his church, if you will. And so this idea of the church gathering is centering itself around the person of Jesus. So I don't know how uh, you at Covenant Church define the word church. I preached through uh, the book of Acts a couple years ago, and I wanted to define that so we were all on the same page. And so this is how we define church at Fayetteville First Baptist. We say that the church is the redeemed and gathered people of God, commissioned to multiply the kingdom of God, throughout the world. That's our simple definition for church. So we are redeemed. That's what draws us together, Jesus, because he has redeemed us. That's why we come together. So therefore we gather, as we're told in Hebrews and other places in the New Testament, we are to gather together. The redeemed gathering commissioned, because we're supposed to be doing something, to multiply the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? The reign or the rule of God over all of life throughout the world. And so as we start to understand our definition of the church, then we get to live out of the richness of that definition. And we drill down into every aspect of that as we try to make disciples who make disciples in the context of Christian community. 
So if this is an accurate description of the church, then what does the church do to fulfill Jesus' mandate to be and make disciples in the context of Christian community? I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 2. I wrote my doctoral dissertation based on this text. I will not bore you to death with my doctoral dissertation. Millions have not read it. Um, But I do want to go back to this text because I think this is the earliest version of what we see Christian community really looking like. It's right after Pentecost. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's equipped his disciples through the coming of the, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Peter's preached that Pentecost sermon. Thousands are saved. Baptismal waters and whatever river happened to be close or pool happened to be close were probably filled for days. And then the church begins to gather as what we today understand it to be the church. So let's look and see what they did. Luke says this. So those who received his word, meaning Peter, were baptized And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. That's a good Sunday. From a pastor's perspective, good Sunday. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, so that's the word of God. We didn't have written form. I don't know why I'm doing this at that point. But it was the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching centered around? The gospel of Jesus and the fellowship. That's the biblical term for community, right? Ecclesia. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread was doing what y'all did tonight, not only taking of uh, the common meal together, but taking of what we would call the Lord's Supper together as well. The prayers would include both prayers in houses, uh, because there were no church buildings, Christian church buildings at that point, and weren't for about 300 years. Uh, and actually, we saw a couple, uh, some churches starting to be built around around 150, but but the movement didn't happen really until after Constantine and all of that. Uh, but the prayers were being ha- held in prayer meetings were being held in church or in houses, and they would continue to go to the Jewish times of prayer as well, because that's what they knew. Luke then says, and uh, awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This was not some early form of communism or socialism. This was simply meeting the needs of the people. And as they came together in community, they saw that there were needs among them. And we eventually see that really being played out in the first church conflict in Acts 6, where they had to raise up some men to deal with the distribution of food because some were not being treated as fairly as others. And so we see them coming together for the purpose of meeting the needs of an ecclesia, of a church, of people who were doing daily life together around the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And listen to the result of this life together. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising uh, God um, as he added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I didn't get the rest of that text in there. I apologize. So as such, Bonhoeffer states, two things become clear right from the beginning. First, Christian community is not an ideal, but a divine reality. If you are a Christ follower tonight, you are in Christian community. You may not be there at church every week. You may not be whatever, but you are part of a larger family. You're part of a larger ecclesia simply because of your identification with Christ. It's a reality in your life. Second, Christian community is a a spiritual and not an emotional reality. It's not if I feel like being a part of community. It's who I am now. I, have, I am a child of God. And, and these children of God who are sitting in a room in Shreveport, this child of God sitting in a room in South Atlanta, are brothers and sisters in Christ. And in some spiritual, global, eternal sense, 
we are in ecclesia together. And that's a, that's a pretty amazing thing in my mind to know that I may never meet you face to face, Lord willing, one day we will. But if not, we are still ecclesia. We are the global church, the Catholic church, lowercase c, the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. And yet you gather, as we do, in smaller versions of that to do ecclesia together. Well, since Christ followers live in this spiritual reality of the church, what actions then should they take individually and corporately to foster such biblical community? Well, Bonhoeffer lists four different actions uh, or key areas where community is found in life together. I'm just going to go through these real quickly because you've read the book, but... um, but these kind of help us to know now, okay, what are the key areas that we gather around? We know we gather around Jesus, and he is the core. He is the center of who we are in gathering. So what, what helps us in that growth in discipleship? What helps us to build healthy uh, community that's based on costly grace? The first thing he mentions is scripture and worship through song. He, he spends uh, a lot of time on this. Uh, we can refer to Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's a powerful text. The reading of scripture, the, the, uh, the uh, out loud reading of scripture, especially Bonhoeffer really hits the psalms uh, uh, in reading the psalms out loud. And so we read our text. We stand in our church and honor the reading of God's word. Uh, I ask our people if they're ready to study God's word every week, right before I preach. We worship through song, and we have two distinct worship styles. We have two morning services here at our church. We do hymns and traditional stuff in the first service and contemporary band and all that stuff in the second service. And uh, someone asked me, why don't you make it all one? Because this is the way these people enjoy worshiping. And so we want them to engage in worship of God. That's our goal, regardless of style. And so I preach the same sermon in both services, but scripture and worship through songs. Secondly, prayer, uh, especially from the Psalms. Um, Matthew 18, 19, again, I say to you, Jesus says, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. Um, and so this, this idea of, of individual prayer, corporate prayer, intercessory prayer becomes a key aspect of community together. The third area he talks about is service. Um, he says this, but it shall not be so among you, Mark 10, 43, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Uh, the actual word there is, uh, is the word we use for deacon. Deacon is used in two different ways in the New Testament. It's used, uh, just generally as a servant and that, and in that sense, all Christians are deacons in the sense of being servants. We follow the ultimate deacon, Jesus himself, the ultimate servant. And then we also see it used in a narrow way as several times in the New Testament to one of the two offices of the church, whether that be pastor elder and then deacon as servant leader as an office within the life of the church. But regardless, we're all called to serve. And we serve in the community, Bonhoeffer says, uh, in three specific ways, by listening, by active helpfulness, and by supporting one another because Jesus tied all authority in the community to service one to another. So listening to one another, active helpfulness and supporting one another. The final way is in the, in the last chapter of the book and that's confession and the Lord's supper. We see that in James five sixteen. therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for, for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person 
has great power as it is working. And so this idea of confession, of, of being open, of being transparent, of being accountable within the context of community is, uh, is extremely important. And of course, the, the demonstration of what we talked about at the very beginning, the gospel is the Lord's Supper. Uh, in fact, uh, Dr. Scott McKnight up at Northern Seminary would call the Lord's Supper gospeling. As we take the bread, as we take the juice or the wine, what we're doing is we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, right? That's what scripture says. And as such, we are gospeling. We are through our actions as a local community ecclesia of faith, we are proclaiming the gospel. That is why we're gathering. It, that and baptism both become these symbols of why we're actually sitting and standing in the same room together. And so Bonhoeffer, though his definition of what the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, uh, might look like maybe a little different than than mine as as an American Baptist. The idea of the Lord's Supper being gospeling, I think, would be common. So, as such, Bonhoeffer was writing again life together in the context of the Confessing Church Seminary. Um, though its application is much more universal, and as such, his routine of community life was different than most of ours. That said, the general ideas of scripture, worship through song, prayer, service to one another, and confession in the Lord's Supper, and even some of the specific practices he mentions uh, in, in doing life on a daily basis together, such as morning meetings or evening meetings, you know, those type of things, can be lived out within our contemporary church context. How these look will be different from even from Shreveport to Atlanta, um, but the call to a healthy, vibrant, growing Christian community grounded in discipleship based on the gospel is the same. And I'll just be honest in, in, in closing tonight. And I, I have a huge pet peeve. Well, I have several in the church, but I'm not going to go through all of them with you tonight. Um, but one is this, when I hear someone who's outside the church say this, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. That's like coming to me and saying, I love you, but I hate your wife. You know, that's not going to go over well. I'm just sorry. I'm a Christian and I'm, I try to speak the truth in love and I try to react with patience. But if you tell me you hate my wife, we're going to we're going to have a discussion. And in essence, when you say, well, I want to follow Jesus. I love Jesus, but I hate his church. What you've just said is that you really don't love Jesus because Jesus is calling us into community with one another, with all its foibles, with all its fallacies, with all its mistakes, with poor leadership, with poor doctrine, with everything there's a lot of good in God's church, right? And as a result of that, we need to embrace that. We need to pursue a healthy um, community, a healthy version of ecclesia that's based in the biblical gospel, that is lived out in the life of, of costly grace in discipleship that produces a healthy environment. Bonhoeffer offers us a stern warning when he says this, Whoever cannot be alone should beware of community. But the reverse is also true. Whoever cannot stand being in community should beware of being alone. We recognize then that only as we stand within community can we be alone. And only those who are alone can live in the community. Both belong together. And it's not as if one preceded the other, rather both began at the same time, namely with the call to Jesus Christ with the call of the gospel into following him both individually but specifically in the life of the local body okay so that's what i got 
And uh, Weston, um, you can wake the people up in the back. That's fine, Lindsay. <laughs> hey, would y'all give Jim a hand? Yeah. Uh, any, any big questions in response to what he's talking about? Clear as mud. All right. Well, we're going to dialogue some more about this. Um, Jim, thank you so much, brother. Yeah, man. Jim's on the East Coast, so he, he's staying up late. He's past my bedtime for sure. So thank you so much, man. It's been, that was awesome. That was really great. Cool. So, hey, can I, can I pray over y'all before I go? Please, That'd be cool? please do. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, uh, we love you. Thank you uh, for calling us together as brothers and sisters in Christ, even for tonight, for a little bit of time. And, and God, I just pray uh, your blessings on Covenant Shreveport. And I pray, God, that you would uh, help them to thrive, to thrive as a healthy local body and expression of the person and the mission of Jesus. And God, I pray your blessings on their pastors, their elders. I pray your blessings on these families, that God, as they, they leave tonight and as they leave corporate times together, that they extend that walk into their into their lives of, of family and of work and of school and of all these places that they have influence and that God your kingdom will be taken out uh, into that area and around the world because of this gathering of local believers in Shreveport so God bless them bless Weston as he leaves and we love you and thank you in Jesus name amen all right love you brother thanks so much you guys all thank right. y'all God bless you